Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, October 7th, and today Matt Bellany is here to talk about Bros, the gay rom-com starring Billy Eichner that bombed at the box office. Eichner is blaming straight people and homophobes for the dismal rollout, but is that true? Matt breaks down the real reasons why it whiffed with audiences. And later, Ben Landy joins Alex Bigler for another round of Feedback Friday. We find out what stories Ben wants us to read this week. And we answer if Puck is left or right, and why we choose to be neither. Newsflash, there are still journalists out there, or here at least, we try to play it straight. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode, Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined today by Puck favorite, Matt Bellany, who doesn't come on this pod very much anymore because he has his own pod called The Town. Um, but we're not mad at you about that. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. That, that means it's more special when I come on here. I look forward to it. I, a thrill runs up my leg, as Chris Matthews once said about Barack Obama. Oh, God. <laughs> That's cringeworthy <laughs> in about 10 different ways. <laughs> it was at the time. Trust me. Hey, I want to talk to you about bros. Um, and not me and you. Obviously, we're good bros. I want to talk to you about Bros the Movie. Bros is a movie, a comedy, that Billy Eichner stars in and just put out. There was a lot of marketing behind this, a lot of hype. And I want to read to you the lead of the New York Times article written by Brooks Barnes earlier this week about the release. There's no easy way to say it. When the reviews are this sensational, the marketing support is this substantive, and the theatrical footprint is this wide, and ticket sales are nonetheless this low, it suggests outright marketplace rejection. Bros, the first gay romantic comedy from a major studio, arrived to an estimated $4. million in ticket sales in the United States and Canada, about 40% less than the low end of pre-release analyst expectations. The article goes on to say that Universal put Bros on about 3,500 screens, spent $30 million promoting it, cost $22 million to make, and here we are. No one is seeing Bros, What's made this sort of a interesting cultural conversation is that Billy Eichner, who I like and you like, I love his show, has really gone on a Twitter jihad saying that if you don't like this movie and you're not seeing it, you're a homophobic weirdo, <laughs> which I think is a dubious proposition. Yeah. And he also blamed straight people for not showing up, even though the numbers suggest that a lot of gay people also didn't show up because you don't open that low if the target audience is gay people and they show up. So that's a whole separate issue. But you know what? I do like Billy Eichner. I've known him a little bit. I've seen him around at events for years. He, his show is really funny. But this didn't work. And the question is, why didn't it work? Because the critics did like it. I think there are as is often with movies that don't work, there are a number of different factors and we can't point exclusively to one of them. I do think there is a level of discomfort that a gay romantic comedy engenders in mainstream audiences. I think that is something that objectively we can say. You can call it homophobia. You can call it Christian values. You can call it whatever you want. But this is a movie that was unapologetic in the content. There was a lot of sex in the movie. So there is a segment of the audience that is not going to see that. And I think Universal really misjudged how big the potential audience for this movie might be because you don't do a $30 million marketing campaign if you know 50 to 60% of the audience out there is just not going to see your movie because they're opposed to it. So that's the first thing. 
Second, there are larger forces at work. Rom-coms in particular have not been theatrical lately, meaning movie studios generally send them directly to streaming now. And Universal has been very aggressive on this front, doing hybrid releases where movies will premiere in theaters and on the Peacock service, or they will send certain movies just to Peacock. They didn't do that on this one because they thought that there was an audience out there that would flock to theaters opening weekend to see this in theaters if it was not available at home. And I think that was a miscalculation. Then from that same Times article, another point that this might have been, quote, too straight for gay audiences and too gay for straight ones. And I think that's a nice way of saying that it is a mainstream studio comedy produced by Judd Apatow, directed by Nick Stoller. And, you know, if you really want to go there and appeal to a gay audience, you've got to go there. You've got to do a little bit more than they did. And I'm speaking as a non-gay person, so I do not profess to speak for gay audiences in the slightest. But that was some of the some of the analysis focused on the fact that it was caught in this Neverland region. The last one I'll mention is just Billy Eichner himself. He's not a star. I mean, if you look at the movies that tend to perform in theaters, they've at least got a star that audiences are familiar with in movie theaters. And Unless you were a fan of Billy on the Street, which I am, but a lot of people were not, you don't know who this guy is. So that's another knock on it and sort of suggests that it should have been a streaming-only movie. So I think put all those together, plus the fact comedy itself is not considered theatrical. Forget rom-coms. More and more, the studios are opting to put comedies on streaming if they make them at all. And that mixture is how you end up with bros. I was going to say the same thing about the star factor, especially after after the pandemic. It feels like a lot of movies that do work in theaters, we've talked about this, are, like it or not, like Marvel movies or big action movies. Or now, like, some art house horror movies, like, find a way to, like, make a lot of money. But Tom Cruise, Chris Pratt, Scarlett Johansson, people know who those people are. Yeah, and it's not necessarily that those people are enough. These days, you can't just do a star vehicle. But if you want something to be theatrical, it kind of has to have some hook that people know and feel familiar and feels bigger, feels elevated, feels, I got to see this in the theater and I got to see it now. And this was not that. Do studios or movie theaters like break out where people were seeing this movie? Because like it feels like, okay, so like if I live in Greenville, South Carolina and I'm like figuring out what movie I'm going to see tonight, Rose is not anywhere near the top of the list. But it might be, in New York. <laughs> this movie did well. New York, L.A., San Francisco. And if you went to the theater that, this past weekend in one of those cities, you likely were surrounded by a bunch of people. So it did fine. But that is traditionally the art house crowd. Those people in urban centers are more likely to go to these types of movies than people in more rural areas. You know, red state, blue state, that next there, red city, blue city. Universal did an interesting thing with this movie, and I think this was mostly coming from Billy Eichner himself, but Universal really jumped on it. This movie was promoted as being important. It was promoted as being groundbreaking. It was the first all-LGBTQ starring movie, and it was a, an important story to tell. I've heard people at Universal say it's an identity stamp movie. This is the kind of company we are. We are putting out these movies because it's important to see this kind of representation on the screen, all of which I agree with. And I think that they should be commended for doing that. However, when it becomes part of the marketing message, 
people don't go to see comedies because they're important. They go to see comedies because they're funny. And I think that they could have done a better job marketing this as a Judd Apatow, raucous, you know, knocked up 40 year old virgin style movie. Now, it doesn't quite deliver on those levels, but the critics did like it. You know, they, they did have enough to promote there. And some of the trailers did. But Billy himself was out there saying, if you don't go to see this movie, essentially you're a bad person. And that's not why people go to see movies. No, and also like there's been this thing that I've noticed in my beat where, and this is especially true among like millennials and Gen Z, like a lot of people are tuning out the news and tuning out political content. And they, you know, they want to escape from the stress and anxiety and also like the social pressure of having to have an opinion about fucking everything all the time. Universal really thought that they could galvanize an audience around this type of movie. And it was just a miscalculation. People didn't show up. Now, Billy Eichner, he's not universally loved within the gay community as well. So it wasn't as if this was some lightning rod that everybody was going to rally around and flock to the theater. He's in a, a bit of an acquired taste or a, a, you know, polarizing taste. I happen to think he's hilarious, but you could show Billy Eichner's Billy on the street stuff to people and they'd be like, what? This guy's annoying. Get him out of my face. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like watching it sometimes, like, especially with my friends. We're all laughing. And a bunch of us had lived in New York City. And we thought it was funny. And one of our friends who had never lived in New York, like, didn't think it was funny. I thought that was like an interesting note. Like, it's a very, like, New York kind of show. Like, yeah, he screams at random people on the street. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but does that translate into romantic comedy lead? The critics like this movie. Generally, audiences that saw it liked it. It got an A cinema score. So like Brooks wrote in the Times, like when all of those factors line up, you have to go to either the marketing or to the just absolute rejection in the market that there is not a big enough market for this movie as they imagine. All right, Matt. Thank you for your uh, insight as always. You know what the fuck you're talking about here. So that's why I wanted to talk to you about this. No problem. Thanks. When we come back, Alex Bigler is here for this week's Feedback Friday. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody. This is Alex Bigler. Happy Friday. I am joined today by the one and only Ben Landy, our executive editor at Puck. Ben and I have not actually been in the same room with each other since we decided we didn't want to share the Chex Mix that we kept on our table. So um, we're going to see how this conversation goes and, and hopefully by the time we're, we get through it, um, we'll have some sort of agreement on like what constitutes sharing. I don't know where this Chex Mix rumor got started, but I'm very happy to be back here. I, I don't know why it's been so long since I've been invited to Feedback Friday, but um, I won't look too closely at that and just say that I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative to be talking to you today. Well, we're happy you're here. And um, the reason that you have not been on in a while is because I've been really making sure to gather and hold on some of the most intense, like really thought-provoking questions that have been submitted by listeners and <laughs> readers to the Fritz inbox, um, because I, I believe that you are the only one who can answer these questions. And so I've wanted to to get a good cache of them going so that we could talk about it today. Oh, God. All right. Let's do it. The first question that I want to dig into is actually something that we get all of the time. And I think we've gotten it a lot more since the wonderful Tara Palmieri joined Puck. Um, politically, is Puck left or is Puck right? The reason I'm asking you this question, it's it's spurred from a number of emails that we get um, on social and Brits, whenever we publish anything about politics, we are either a liberal rag or we're giving too much air to Republicans. It's never anywhere in between. And so now that I have you here on the spot, I'd love for you to answer that question for our listeners. It's funny. I see this commentary a lot too online, and, and I've seen some of the emails that have come to me directly or that have been forwarded to me. One of our journalists will write something about Republicans making excuses for January 6th, or someone will write about sort of inside conversation among Democrats in Washington that potentially Biden is too old to run for re-election or about the sort of fading political capital of Kamala Harris. And we will get feedback from people saying, why are you taking shots at my side? You know, so some of this commentary from readers is, is smart and we appreciate when people reach out to us, of course. I appreciate too that people feel passionately about these things. There's certainly an expectation in journalism these days, more and more, and especially in the media more broadly, among our readers, but also inside of newsrooms, that journalism ought to be advocacy, that it should double as part of a partisan agenda. You have to pick a side that determines the kind of stories you choose to write about and how you write about them. I think that at Puck, we just fundamentally reject that notion. First of all, because we are not a partisan outlet, but also just because that type of journalism is not as interesting to us. There are a lot of places you can go if you want your worldview to be coddled, or to be told what to think um, if you don't want your worldview to be challenged. What we're interested in fundamentally is explaining the world that we live in in a way that illuminates the actual thinking and conversations and strategies of the power players in those worlds and how they are shaping Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Washington, etc. And so as a result, we're going to write all kinds of different stories about all kinds of different people. Tina the other day wrote a terrific profile of the guys who are building The Daily Wire, which is a conservative media startup from Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring. 
on some level, it doesn't matter what you think of their politics. You may find some of their positions to be distasteful. But there's no doubt that the business they're building is interesting. And whatever your political viewpoints, is useful to understand the editorial vision, the business strategy, because it says so much about the media industry writ large. I think that's a really great way of putting it. And when you know, I get asked it all the time as well uh, from friends or readers who who know me outside of the office. And I think the answer I always tend to gravitate towards is Puck is just curious. We're curious about the people and the players and the decisions that are being made across the power corners of America. And it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative or if you don't even care about politics, if you're in media and entertainment or Wall Street. There are just interesting characters in all of these areas, and we are really seeking to deeply and more deeply understand and share with our readership who these people are, why they do the things they do, um, and what makes them so interesting in their perspective worlds. You said that so much more eloquently than me. (laughs) That's nice of you to say. I didn't. You did a great job. (laughs) Okay, one tough. Fritz inbox question down. Are you ready for the second tough Fritz inbox question? Keep it rolling. We often get questions where people ask us how we recommend they consume Puck. So when you think about Puck and all of the different avenues that we have to share our content, we have our website with articles. Our journalists have newsletters. We have our podcast. And people, you know, are excited about the breath, sometimes a little confused about the breath. They want to know if their subscription gets them access to all the journalists or just some. What do they miss out if they don't subscribe to a newsletter and only want to read online or vice versa? What are they missing out on the site that they're not getting an email? I thought as our executive editor, this would be a great question for you. How do you recommend prospective Puck subscribers or current Puck subscribers consume all of the work that we're putting out there? There's no one way to consume Puck. I think when we launched this company, we had a vision of building the content around authors and talent. And that took the form of newsletters primarily, especially at launch. It was a really personal way to connect talent directly with their audiences. That's still a cornerstone of what we're doing here. But we also found, you know, as we were building this website and our presence more broadly, that there are lots of readers who, in a more traditional way, also want to engage with content on the web. So we have a a robust website. You can find our content and read it online. There's no right answer. I totally agree. And we've, we've, you know, added new products. Like you mentioned, we're breaking into events more, other ways for people to to engage with Puck. But but one pro tip I will say for, for people who don't read the newsletters and prefer to read things online or just listen to the podcast is, the newsletters often have a couple of, you know, juicy or spicy tidbits in there that don't actually make it into the article, which really does every time I read them, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. so I don't know if you feel the same way editing it as I feel reading it, but I love them. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting tension that we've been that we've been processing from an editorial and product management point of view. Right now, if you subscribe to newsletters on Puck, it's true. There are often pieces of information that appear in those emails that we do not also publish online. They are they are exclusive to subscribers and people who sign up for those emails. But we're also exploring ways to get that information out more broadly. We, we want the emails to feel really personal and exclusive. But we also have recently built a archive function on the website so that people can go back and find a 
web reader version of the emails that go out. But I, but I highly recommend that, that people sign up for the authors if they want to get the, the full Puck experience. Web reader versions. That's exciting stuff, Ben. <laughs> Thanks for sharing it with our listeners. <laughs> it's 2022, Alex. So Ben, I've got one more question to you before we send people into the weekend. What article that we published this week or even the week before would you encourage listeners to check out? You know, I thought Eric Gardner wrote a fantastic story the other day about the litigation in Delaware between Elon Musk and Twitter and this fascinating subplot in which Morgan Stanley was trying to keep its communications with Elon out of the public record as privileged. I mentioned this the other day on the pod when Eric and I were talking about Elon saying that actually he's going to reverse himself and buy Twitter after all. We had just recorded an entire segment about this Morgan Stanley subplot, which we just cut and left on the floor. But even though the overall story has changed now that Elon is allegedly going to go forward and buy this company outright, it's still a perfect look into the inside conversation that takes place at the highest level between people on Wall Street in tech. And the story that Eric wrote is a perfect encapsulation of that. I mean, he describes in this story something like 36 lawyers at one time going in and out of this Delaware courtroom to represent the interests of this Wall Street firm to keep private whatever happened when, as they were talking to Elon about pulling together the financing for this deal. It, it, it's just fascinating. Um, and Eric is one of the only writers in the country who's really looking at this stuff closely and helping to explain it. And when the Elon DMs and tweets kind of broke, you know, we were all talking about the salacious bits in our all-team Slack channel. And I feel like Eric came out of nowhere with, yeah, but is anybody talking about the exact thing you just mentioned? And every, our whole team was like, what? No. Ah. And so Eric then like kind of took our reactions, went and wrote a piece about it. And it is really fascinating. So if you're interested in in checking it out and reading it, we will put the link to that article in the show notes for today's episode. So Ben, thank you so much for joining me on this lovely Friday. I hope to have you back again sometime. It was a pleasure. I hope to be invited back. We'll see. You will be invited back. But I'd like to close with, just like there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's, there is no wrong way to consume puck content, a Ben Landy catchphrase from here on out. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on Monday. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.